We are in the book of the Judges. This is part 25. This is the 25th sermon that I have preached in the book of the Judges. And if you are joining us for the first time, the period of the Judges or the settlement period is kind of a a dark stain on Israel's story. They are supposed to finish settling the land. They are supposed to finish what Joshua started, taking the, the promised land, and they don't. They grow complacent in their faith. They're like, yeah, whatever, no big deal. And they begin to drift. Like, instead of walking with God, they begin drifting off that path. And then they get into trouble, and they get into idolatry, and, and God punishes them by raising up foreign nations to oppress them, and then they cry out to God for help, and then he raises up deliverers, and they deal with the, the military threat, and then things are seemingly okay for a while, and then they fall back into their old ways once again. And each time it just gets progressively worse and worse and worse. It's this ongoing, ongoing cycle. Well, that's where we pick up today. In the 19th chapter of Judges, starting in verse 1. And I will say, this is uh, viewer discretion advised. It gets kind of PG-13 here, so hang, hang tight with me. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning. He was traveling in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. That's one of the twelve tribes, one of the territories, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, a city, Bethlehem in Judah, another one of the twelve tribes, one of the territories. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. It's interesting because the man is referred to as the father-in-law of the Levite, and yet His daughter is not referred to as his wife, but rather simply his concubine. This would have been understood as a second-class wife, which raises the question of whether or not this particular Levite may have had other wives. If he didn't have other wives, then you might ask the question, why isn't she being treated as a normal wife? Why as a concubine? Why as a a second-class wife? And so she apparently has abandoned her husband... Perhaps she's don't really know the reason. Maybe she's tired of being treated as a secondary wife. In fact, I don't know a lot of girls who say, oh my goodness, I just got into a relationship with this guy and he's dating two other girls. That's usually not something that I find that most girls are looking forward to. So that, that maybe, maybe there's some motivation there. The text doesn't necessarily tell us. But she also may have been designated as unfaithful simply because she walked out on her husband. I know when we use the English term unfaithful, that obviously raises uh, the picture of infidelity. But she may have received this designation because she walked out on him. But then on the other hand, well, these are strange and evil times. And I don't know, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised if when she returned home, her father then sent her out to work as a prostitute to contribute to the family economy. But whatever has happened, 
She's gone. He waits four months, and she doesn't come back. And then after four months, he takes the initiative. He goes uh, to find her, to seek her, uh, and to bring her home. And then when he arrives, his father-in-law, he's super pumped to see him with great joy. He's excited to see him. And he just shows him uh, great kindness, great hospitality. Oh, come, stay, my boy. It makes me think of whenever I go to uh, visit my wife's family out in Washington State, her family is all Romanian. And so I, when I talk to her dad, she usually has to translate. But when I come and I see him, he's always like, oh, my boy, my boy. And then he just flowers me with kisses. And I'm just there. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. The first time was really interesting. Um, I, was like, I don't know what's happening here. But you, but you see this kindness and this hospitality that's coming through on the part of, of this father-in-law. And so he says, so stay until your heart's merry. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have food. It's going to be great. We continue verse 5. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. Prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them, And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Now I'm reading this story and maybe... Maybe it's just because the type of person that I am. Maybe it's because I've preached 24 sermons leading up to this, and if you've been here for most of them, you know this is, this is not a good time period for, for Israel in their history. It's the dark days of the judges. And so there's maybe some healthy skepticism we have. But I'm reading this, I'm like, why is this guy being so nice? Why is he being so kind? What's going on? Like, he is just, he is being really kind, really hospitable, really nice to his son-in-law, to the point where I'm like, this is kind of fishy. This is kind of strange. What's, what's the deal here? And then I'm like, the text doesn't indicate that there's any deal at all. He's just really kind and hospitable to his son-in-law. And I, and I read this, and I'm only, almost thinking, all right, there must be something wrong with him because no one's that nice. And when we say that, right, like what we're saying is, is you're being so kind, so hospitable, you're setting the bar up here. There must be something wrong with you, okay, because no one's that nice. I'm going to pull the bar down here. That way I feel better about myself. I think we do that sometimes. Far from being cast as a negative character, this man is portrayed as a model of hospitality, exceeding the standards of that day, exceeding the standards honored by Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. 
He's very kind. He's very good. He's very generous to his son-in-law. That's really all we know about this nameless character. Not a lot of good, positive characters in this story. We have one here, I think. And people ask me, why, uh, why do you guys do that thing where you stop the service for five minutes on, you know, when you guys gather? I don't know if you ever wondered that. I call it intermission, right? Why, why do you do inter- intermission? And the reason we stop the service for five minutes every Sunday is to give people the opportunity to exercise hospitality and to participate in a, in a greater extent in, in the service. Because sometimes the kindness that you show someone can be worth more than 20 good sermons. Sometimes. You have no idea what people are going through. Even people that are sitting next to you right now. You don't know the week they had. You know, speaking from my own personal experience, I've uh, grown up in church, and I'd say... In my almost 33 years on this planet, uh, I can think of maybe two times where someone went out of their way, where I walked into a church gathering and someone went out of their way um, to like get to know me. Where someone went out of their way and was like, hey, what's your name? Is this your first Sunday? And, and, and asked me questions to get to know me and then went a step further and said, listen, like, I, w- I don't know if you're interested. I'd love for you to come to like a small group player this week. I go to this, I go to Wednesday night small group, but there's a Tuesday and a Wednesday. I've, maybe twice ever. I've, I, I can't think of maybe one time where I went to uh, a church gathering and someone was like, oh, are you sitting by yourself? Would you like to come sit with us? Maybe you have a different experience than me. That's kind of my experience. Like, unless you take the initiative when you come into a church gathering to break through, right, the the status quo, the, the mold, right, the friendships that already exist, it can be kind of hard. And then I'm thinking of John 13, 35, right? I'm thinking of what Jesus says. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another and we see people that we've never met and, you know, maybe they're sitting alone and oftentimes our first reaction is, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think sometimes our first reaction, we see someone new, they're sitting by themselves and, and we're thinking, oh man, I wish I hadn't have seen them. I wish I hadn't have seen them. Oh, do I talk to them? Oh, we'll let someone else go and talk to them. Right, Because I'm in the middle of talking to my friends and it's so much easier just to talk to our friends because we've already got these relationships built. And I think these are real thoughts that sometimes run through our mind. Oh, just let someone else go. They can, they can go and talk to that person. And then yet, for all we know, that person m- m- might not know Jesus. I was um, reading an article from Desiring God. Love Desiring God. John Piper started the organization. You should definitely subscribe to them. They got great stuff. But I'm reading this article. I think the woman's name was Rebecca who wrote the article. Give her credit. But she is talking about the very thing that we're talking about, right? Hospitality. That's the issue here. This father-in-law is showing so much hospitality to to his Levite son-in-law. 
And she tells a very similar experience, right? There she is. She sees this woman. Oh, I, I, I don't recognize her. She must be new. She's sitting by herself. Do I talk to her? Do I not talk to her? She makes the decision. She goes and talks to her. She meets the woman. She finds out she was raised Roman Catholic. Hasn't been in a church setting in over 10 years. In fact, finds out just that month her fiancé broke up with her right before their wedding. And then for some reason, right, of all days, this woman who hasn't been in a church setting in over 10 years decides, I'm going to show up in a church setting, a little, like a Protestant church setting. She invites her to come to a small group. The woman says yes. She's been coming ever since. And I think... And one thing I really appreciated as I uh, shotgun blast application from the hospitality of the father-in-law in this story. I think here's one way we should approach this. When we see an alone person in our church gathering settings, I think that should be an emergency. It should be an emergency, okay? It should be. And in times of crisis... We, we do really strange things. Like in times of crisis, we'll interrupt conversations. We, we will like stop what we're doing to mobilize. And every week, people walk into church gatherings across the city and across this country for the very first time and get effectively ignored. They may not know Jesus. They may have spent years wandering from him and their spiritual health is on the line and and it's maybe just a simple conversation that God has ordained to convey his grace to them to begin to change their lives. That's not an overstatement, folks. Like, eternal lives are at stake. So what what if it's a, a regular church member who's feeling alone? Regular church members, they can feel alone too. Pastors can feel alone too. I'd say an isolated believer is also an emergency. And I'm thinking John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples, Jesus says, if, if you have love for one another, right? They're coming like, holy cow, these people love each other. Furthermore, I, I don't know how we can claim to be one body in a 1 Corinthians 12, 12 sort of way when, when we can't even like sit together or engage one another. And this is where you've heard me probably say it before if you've come here for any period of time. I like to say this. Um, some of you have heard this, like church, church is like a family. Nope, not true. Church is not like a family, Right? It's not like a family. Maybe you grew up here and that, oh, church is kind of like a family. It's not because church is a family. It's not like a family. It is a family. It's exactly that. That's the language of the scriptures through and through, right? They come to Jesus. Jesus, your, your, your mother and your brothers, they're outside. Who are my mother and my brothers? But those who do the will of God. Those are my mothers and my, and my brothers, my sisters. Those who do the will of the Lord. That's the language of the scriptures. And, oh, by the way, there are actually tangible ways in which we can express this in in the church. There's tangible ways that we can express this? Yeah. Just one example. For starters, we can invite others to sit with us or, oh, by the way, even separate with others and go sit with other people. 
You're telling me I come here with a group of my friends and like two of us can actually break off from our friend group and go sit with other people? Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. Who knew, right? <laughs> I think we know, but it's like, okay, yeah, I guess I can do that. Yeah, that's true. And you'd be surprised the difference it makes. You'd be surprised. I'm in a small group last week. And I'm in a prayer pod. If you never come to small groups, they're awesome. You should come. They're they're really terrific. But I'm in a prayer pod. It's me and these two other guys. And the one guy, um, he's a new believer. And uh, I met him like two months ago, just out in the city, just struck up a conversation with this person. And he's just saying, I don't, I've never met anyone that's been so nice or so kind to me ever. He starts naming off all these people at the church, like this person and this person and this person. He's like, they're so kind. And they're just, I've never met so people that are so accepting and so welcoming and so loving. Almost brought me to tears thinking about that. Thinking John 13, 35, right? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. And people come into our church gatherings and they see, oh my goodness, these people love each other. You think that should be, you think that should be, well, that's just, that, that should always be the case. It should be. And sometimes we complain, Right? The father-in-law in this story, man, he's so hospitable. Where's, where's my father-in-law? Right? I wish somebody would be that kind and hospitable to me. I've had that attitude before. And so I, you know where I'm going, right? I'm going to flip this. What if you tried being hospitable and intentional to others? But I'm a brand new person here, not my job. Okay. Maybe. But what if you did? What if that was your focus? This woman writing this article, once again, I think her name is Rebecca, she shares this story. She had a friend, single, young single girl, and she had expressed to her, just sometimes she feels sad when she sits alone in church gatherings. And um, her friend is really has amazing high degree of social skills. And I personally love people that have a high degree of social skills. They're awesome. Like, they're a lot easier to get along with than people that have maybe a lower degree of social skills. I mean, if we're being honest... Okay? Sometimes it's like, all right, that person's just kind of weird, or they get on my nerves. Um, See, you guys laugh. There's people like that at every single church. People have high degree, people have low degree of social skills. And and so the the girl with a high degree of social skills, she's telling this woman who's writing this article, I just feel kind of sad sometimes. I I feel kind of lonely. I sit by myself, blah, 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 blah. And the woman just tells her, listen, you have such an amazing, like, sense of self-awareness. You have amazing social skills. There is no reason you should be sitting by yourself every Sunday when you could sit with others and be a blessing to them. Be a blessing to them. Maybe help people who have a lesser degree of social skills. Maybe bring them up a little bit. That's, that's, that's a little bit of discipleship going on. I'm sure we've all wondered... At one time or another, we've asked that question, who's going to love me today if I come into this small group or if I come into this church gathering? Like, who's going to love me? And I can't help um, but say, what if we just switch the focus and, we, and our prayer was, God, 
Who are you going to bring to my attention today that I can love, that I can fill up their cup, that I can pour into them, that I can be like the father-in-law in this hospitality and just flower them with generosity and kindness and, and hospitality? What if that was our focus? What if we changed it? What if our focus, when we go into any type of church gathering, small group, Sunday a gathering, if our focus was, do you recognize that person? I'll, I'll tell you guys a secret. I don't normally divulge this information. So I'll tell you. The reason I stand at the front door every week is so I can figure that out and memorize everyone's names. Because sometimes that's worth more than 20 good sermons. And I do that to... to to try to lead by example. And some of you guys are just amazing. You have amazing social skills. And you're like, oh, that's a new person. That's not a new person. Oh, they were here two weeks. They were here one week. Oh, let's go talk to them. Let's reach out to them. Let's minister to them. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. What if, what if that was our, our focus, right? Now, who can love me today, but who can I love? Who can I pour into? God, who do you have for me today to be like the father-in-law, to show this type of kindness? And you say, well, but if I'm in a conversation with my friend, I might miss out in that conversation with him. I might miss out a little bit. And I say, no, 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 not at all. Because in those moments, when you're talking to your friend, oh, look, that person's new. Okay, let's go talk to them. You spur each other on to welcome strangers in the name of Christ you don't miss out on relationships. You deepen relationships when you do that. When you do that, you deepen those relationships, guys. And oh, by the way, um, you don't have to do just do this in official church gatherings. I, I'm sitting at a Chick-fil-A Monday night because it's Military Monday, and I, like Josh Gowdy and I, we got our military ID, so we go. Um, it's like we can eat there for like. If, you're, if, the, if, you, if you have military ID, you can eat there for like $2. It's amazing. But we kind of do our own like, it's almost like this unofficial like guys love feast. So it's like guys only. We go there every Monday at like 5 o'clock. If you're a guy and you're like, I want to go to that, just show up or come talk to me after the service. I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll give you the, uh, the details. But we're there and, and we're walking out and I see this, this couple, they're playing chess. And I like playing chess. And I'm thinking, what a great segue to go and talk to them, right? Okay, there's, there's my entry point. I've already got the chest thing down. I go over. Turns out Josh Raines actually knows him. We strike up a conversation with them. And then I pull out my wallet because I keep those little LCC business cards with all the information of the church. And I'm like, hey, I don't know if you guys are like involved in any type of small groups, but you should totally come. Like, we, Josh Raines and I, we go every Wednesday night. Um, and here's the information. We would love for you to come. And they were like, they, they were they're like really receptive to, to us. But that's my point. It doesn't just have to be a, a church gathering. Like, I don't want you to think, all right, it's Sunday, all right? Time to, like, get in the zone, or it's, or it's Wednesday, or it's Tuesday. Like, this can happen anywhere. That's the beauty of it, right? As representatives of the king. And it can happen at a Chick-fil-A, or in line at Target, or, or in the coffee aisle at, at Walmart. There, there are moments to be, like, the Levites' father-in-law that are waiting for us. They're waiting for us. And I know some people will say, but these conversations, you know, some people, maybe like the, the father-in-law of the story, like it just comes more naturally to them. I don't, I don't, 
I don't disagree that there are some people, they just, it's so overwhelming that they have the gift of hospitality. It's just, they just do it like with their eyes closed. People say, well, those conversations, they're hard. And I would respond, if those type of conversations aren't difficult, if they don't maybe push you out of your comfort zone a little, you might not be conducting fellowship the right way. I'm thinking Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul says, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Of course those conversations will take a little bit more energy, right? Okay, conversations with your buddy that you've known for four years, I mean, that's like season four of whatever your favorite TV show is. You don't need the recap. You've already got the plot, the character development. You just need to click play and watch the next episode, right? You just pick up where you left off. And of course, it's going to be more challenging. But how did you get to season four of that relationship? It started with season one, episode one, right? Where you didn't really know any of the characters. You didn't know any information about the people there. Took a little bit, a little, little bit of effort. Yeah, there was a question mark. Well, are, am I, will it even matter, right? Maybe... Maybe I'll never see this person again. So yeah, if it doesn't challenge you, if it doesn't push you outside your comfort zone a little, you might not be doing it right. And at this point, I would remind all of us what a difference a small act of kindness and hospitality might make for the kingdom. Because for all you know, there is today... Or, th- or this week, a, a person that you're going to have the opportunity to show kindness. And it might not be a big deal to you, but it might make all the difference in the world to them. Like the woman who went over and talked to the brand new girl who hadn't been in a church gathering in 10 years, whose fiancé dumped her a month earlier. Because that's the world we live in. We live in a lost and dying world, people. And we need to feel that urgency. And my hope, my prayer for us in this story is that when we reflect on the father-in-law, our mindset would be one of prayer that invokes God to help us, to show us that same level of kindness, that same level of hospitality that the father-in-law shows. And so the narrator sets this up in a very, he's going to contrast this, right? So far the story is really, really good. It's about to take a drastic direction. Verse 10, but the man... The man would not spend the night. This is the son-in-law. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. Now, it's called Jebus, not Jerusalem, because the Israelites don't control it yet. They won't control it until the time of King David. So there's still a Canaanite present there, and that's important to note that. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, verse 11... The day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to them, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah, because both of those are in Benjamin. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down 
in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. They leave. The father-in-law, they're on their way home. It's getting dark. The servant says, hey, let's stop in Jerusalem. Let's stop in Jebus. We're right here, right? This will work out. The Levite says, no, not happening. I'd rather push on a few extra miles, right? Drive a little bit further. That way we're going to be an Israelite like controlled territory by the Benjaminites. That way we're no, we know we're going to, we know what we're going to get, right? We're going to get safety. We're going to get hospitality because none of that is guaranteed if we stop in Jerusalem. So he correctly analyzes the situation, right? Here, the issue is hospitality. And so they say, all right, we'll push on to Gibeah. The Benjaminites control that. We'll definitely, once we make it there, we'll be good to go. And of course, they arrive, and it is not what they expected. In fact, notice the last clause here. No one took them into his house to spend the night. This would have been shocking anywhere in the ancient Near East, but especially in Israel. Shocking. Like, this is my mindset today. If, if there was ever a place to find kindness, if there was ever a place to receive hospitality, wouldn't you expect it to be in Gibeah of all places? Like, wouldn't you expect to find kindness and hospitality out of all places in the church? Like, if you can't find it in Gibeah, if you can't find it in the church, I don't know where you can find it. And behold, verse 16. An old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. And he was sojourning in Gibeah. He's traveling in Gibeah. He stopped there. We don't know how long he's going to be there. Maybe he got a job there, so he's, he's working there. The men of the place were Benjamites. Benjaminites, the narrator wants to clear that up for us. Verse 17, and he lifted up his eyes, this is the old man, and saw the traveler, that would have been the Levite, in the open square at the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, well, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. I have this conversation and as they have this conversation, we begin, begins to peel back the social dysfunction that is in Gibeah. The Levite makes it clear, listen, we're not asking for much. Like, we, we've got everything taken care of. We really don't need a whole lot. We've brought food and drink. We've even got supplies for our donkeys. Like, we're not even expecting a meal. We're just looking for a place to stay. That's it, just to crash for the night. And the irony of this story is that they had bypassed the Canaanite city of Jerusalem because they knew, well, we're definitely not going to receive what we need there, right? No chance we're going to get kindness or hospitality from those foreigner Canaanites. And there's the, the ironic twist here. Right? The, the, the people of this tribe, they sense no obligation to the members 
of another tribe, their own people. Right? There's no sense of community in this story among the covenant people of God. What a tragedy. And unfortunately, that tends to be the case today as well. No sense of community. There was a guy who came, talked to me, said, Joe, I really want to get involved at the church. There are a few things that encourage me more when people tell me that. But this was a little bit of a unique situation because normally people will come and tell me that because they've maybe been coming for a month or whatever. They've started to come to small groups. They really want to get plugged in. They really want to get involved. This was different because I first invited this guy to come visit the church like a year earlier. And so I politely asked him, I said, well, that's, that's great. I'm just curious, why, why now? Why, why do you want to come get involved now? Because you know, I invited you a year ago. I just, you know, what, what's changed? And he just shared to me, he's like, well, I, I've been going to this other church for over a year, mainly just because my friends go, but I've just realized after a year that I go in on Sunday, I sit down, and then I stand up and I leave, and no one talks to me. And I've been going there for a year. Is it, is it really such a bad thing just to want community? No, it's not a bad thing. It's not. It's not at all. Um, that, that's the church, right? And some of you might think, no, the church is, I come, I sit, I hear a sermon. Listen, if that's the case, I'll give you a good John Piper sermon. You can go listen to it on YouTube right now. Like, like, the beauty of the church is that we gather together corporately, the people of God, to worship the living God. Like, that's the beauty of the church, that we come together to do this once a week. All of us together, once a week, one place, one time, to be the bride of Christ, to be what the church was always supposed to be. Right? It's not like a family. It is a family. And he said, I just... I just want somebody to know me. And I said, I understand that. I understand that. Well, picks up. The old man shows him hospitality, where he finds none among the Benjaminites. The old man does. Verse 20. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, they're having a great time. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. This has a real, you're going to notice right away, this real Sodom and Gomorrah-like feel to it, unfortunately. The old man has flowered him with hospitality and kindness. The men of the city who took no notice of him earlier, well, they take notice. They finally arrived, but it's definitely not to extend their hospitality. They want him to come out. I want to rape him. I want to have sex with him. And at this point, we don't just have a breakdown of hospitality. We have a breakdown of the entire social fabric of the nation. The entire social fabric. Verse 23, And the master of the house 
went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. In the day and age, the host, they were responsible for the welfare of their guest. His reputation's on the line. Should anything happen to his guest? And yet now we see this seemingly connection that we saw last week where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. As he cannot convince them to simply leave, he then takes a very pragmatic approach. Verse 24, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. The host honor is at stake. And and this is a real tricky, complex, ethical issue. Just throwing that out there. He's got split-second decision. He's got to try to figure out something. And so this man takes a very pragmatic view. It would be far worse if they violated the women rather than the man in his mind. And so he's making this offer to them. They're having nothing of it. Verse 25, But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. There is a a little bit of ambiguity if you throw verse 25 back up on the screen. It says, so the man seized his concubine and it, it raises the question, well, which man actually put the concubine out there? Because the old man, the host, he's been the main character in the previous verses and yet it seems, as the New American Commentary points out, that it was the Levite here who ultimately pushed her out, who forced her to go. He stood up in defense of the host and doing so defending his own masculine honor, right? So there is the host. He's negotiating with the men. Who knows how many of them there are? Who knows how many more seconds or minutes before they break down the doors and come in and ravage them all? And he's negotiating them. The Levite's standing here. He's watching this all go down. And then he's hearing the conversation, even when he offers the concubine, and even when he offers his own virgin daughter, the men still say no. And at that point, the Levite seems to grab his concubine, force her to go out, and that's the end of it. I think that's probably a pretty accurate picture of what happened. And with this note, the narrator has given his verdict on the spiritual and moral state of Israel. The spiritual and moral state of Israel, a place in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And the master rose up in the morning Verse 27. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold, perhaps too weak to even like knock on the door, speak for help. Verse 28, he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. The tone is cold. 
and calculated to fit the Levite's attitude. He sounds so nonchalant. His concubine, the secondary wife of his, has been raped and abused all night long, has no, apparently no intention of going out to look for her. He, he wakes up in the morning. Oh, all right, I guess we're going to be going. Opens the door. Hey, get up. It's time to go. With uh, no expression of emotion, the man picks up the woman, places her on his donkey, arises and goes home. These verses portray this Levite as incredibly calloused. Like the, at this point in the story, there, there are words that would probably be appropriate and yet would be inappropriate for me to, to say them in this setting about the events that have just taken place. It reflects, it reflects just the level of evil and depravity among the people of God. He puts her on the donkey, verse 29, and when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. He chopped up her body into 12 different pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel and all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. And the narrator teases the reader by leaving all options open. Was the woman dead when he found her on the doorsteps? If she was not dead when he found her, then the Levite is guilty of murder. If she was dead, then he desecrates her body, treating her as if she was some animal carcass. On the surface, this story is all about hospitality. And then below the surface, this is all about the state of Israel, the spiritual condition of the people of God, and their total depravity. You think about what has happened. The, the Levite preferred Gibeah over Jebus, preferred Gibeah over Jerusalem to avoid the dangers of the Canaanism only to discover that the culture of the Canaanites, the culture of death, has invaded his own world. And although their intentions have been to preserve their honor, the host and the Levite, in which they had certainly a more pragmatic approach, they had to make a split-second decision, they had to maybe choose the lesser of two evils, in the end, all the men in this story turn out to be dishonorable characters. There is no expression of kindness. There is no self-sacrificing love. There is no concern or care even after the fact. And they know that she's been raped and abused like all night long. There's no picture of God. There's no emulation of Christ. This is a story in which hospitality meets total depravity and showcases how low Israel has sunk and how when they look in a mirror, they are indistinguishable from the world around them with regards to 
morality and ethics and social values and kindness and sacrificial love and hospitality. There is no difference. Beyond that, there is no community. The covenant people of God don't exist in this story. And unfortunately, the covenant people of God today, that is the church, they aren't always altogether that much different than the world in which we live. But it shouldn't be like that. We, we should be different. We, we should be different, guys. We should be a light set on a hill, a shining beacon of hope, because if people can't find kindness and truth and hope and a hospitality and love in the church among the people of God, among those who have received so much of the love of Christ, who have supposedly been changed by His life, supposedly changed by His love for us, if they can't find that, if they can't see that, then perhaps it shows us that we are far more like the people of Benjamin in this story than we may like to acknowledge. But understand this. We, sh we don't show kindness and love and hospitality because we're trying to be good people. We don't, all right, well, if they did this, I'm going to do it like that. You know, I'm going to show kindness, I'm going to show love, I'm going to show hospitality because I'm going to try to be a good person, right? Because if that's all you get from this, then all you have is Christian morality. I.e., be a good person, do good to others, live a good life. There are so many people who do this who are going to hell. There has to be more. There must be. Or have you not heard that it was said? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us. He shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, right? Not good people looking for him. We were sinners. We didn't love him. We hated him. We were his enemies. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we do this. That's why we show this. That's why we live this. There has been no greater display of love, no greater display of hospitality than that which was demonstrated on the cross by Jesus. It was the apex of all those things. That's why we're different. That's why we should be different and display the, that sort of difference in the world today for others to see. Oh, that we might take a page out of the father-in-law's example. Oh, that we might take a page even beyond that. That we would be more like Christ to this world. We show kindness. We show love. We show hospitality because Christ has set the bar. You think the, the father-in-law sets the bar, right? The, the, the bar was a, a shattered alleviated at the cross. That's why. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us, guys. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be that light, that beacon of hope, 
be it truth or kindness or hospitality or love, that we would be like that to others. Not because we're simply trying to be a good person, but because, Lord, you were that and so much more, a thousand times more than that, God. And, Lord, it's hard sometimes in our selfishness. We get too comfortable in our friend groups, in our, in our social settings. Lord, I pray that you would give us a passion for new people, for lost people, for all people. Jesus. Lord, convict us for those of us who struggle in this area. Help us to be not just like the father-in-law. Help us to be like your son. In your name we pray, amen.